Welcome to the Commission Podcast. You've joined us as we spend our summer at Revive 2019, Commission's annual Bible festival. We're in the seminar tents for the next few weeks as we hear talks on a huge variety of topics. Today we hear from Rachel Jones. Rachel is an award-winning author as well as editor for The Good Book Company. Her seminar was based on her latest book that looks at navigating living for Jesus in your 20s and 30s. Is this it? Uh, well, good afternoon. Um, yeah, my name is Rachel Jones. I work as an editor at The Good Book Company. Um, I'm a member of Chessington Evangelical Church, which isn't actually a commission church. Um, but all the more, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me uh, to do this seminar on living a meaningful life for Jesus in London in your 20s and 30s. Um, and I actually had my birthday about 10 days ago. I turned 27. And so, of course, the following Friday evening, the weekend just gone, you would have found me mowing the lawn. And uh, that tells you two things that arguably undermine my credibility as we come to this seminar. First, I have a lawn. Second, I mow it. Um, nothing says life in London in your 20s less than mowing your lawn on a Friday night. Um, and, and third, actually, I enjoy it, you know, pulling weeds and everything. That is what life in zone six will do to you. So think twice before you move out. Um, uh, but there I was, you know, trying to, trying to get my lines straight, trying to get an even cut around the edges of the lawn. Ladies, if you've never mowed a lawn, it's actually very empowering. It's, uh, it's kind of like shaving your legs, but, but bigger. Um, it, it's important not to miss the patch, but very easily done. Um, and, uh, and as I was mowing the lawn, I just, I just caught myself and I, I saw what I must have looked like and I thought, oh, this isn't, this isn't what I'm meant to be doing in my 20s. Um, and I can't believe next weekend I got to stand up and pretend to be this model millennial uh, when really I'm practically middle-aged. Um, anyway, I, I share that because my, my thinking in that moment kind of betrays part of the problem that we're going to be thinking about this afternoon. We've all got this idea of what life should look like. I don't know whether you've got a lawn or whether you aspire to have one. Um, I don't know whether you've grown up in London or moved there for work or university. Um, I don't know whether you're, you're living with your parents or maybe in a house share, maybe you have a family of your own. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that... Um, all of us come to our 20s and 30s with expectations about what life should look like. Um, and most of us, at some stage or another, reach the point where we look around and we think, you know, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't quite this. Um, is this it? Is this all there is to adult life? Where is it going? What's it for? I thought it would be sort of bigger, better, shinier, just not this. Um, and some of these disappointed expectations run really deep. Maybe you thought you'd have a family by now, and you don't. You thought you'd have a job you actually liked by now, and you haven't. You thought you'd feel at home in your, in your church by now, but you still feel like a stranger. You find yourself feeling a little bit lost, a little bit lonely, a little bit like you're looking for something, but you're not sure what. Um, and that's really the feeling that the book is this it, is trying to address. Um, it's a feeling that I've wrestled with for several years. 
but I want to say it's not a feeling that we have to be stuck with. It, it is possible to live out our 20s and 30s with increasing joy um, and real purpose as we seek to follow Jesus. And that's what we're going to start thinking about uh, in our time together this afternoon. Um, and there's, there's a lot that we could talk about in the next 45 minutes or so, but we're going to limit our focus to just three almost alliterated, uh, alliterating and kind of related words. Um, dissatisfaction, this sense that I, I don't really like where my life is at right now. Decision paralysis, I don't know how to make it better or, or where I want it to go. And then self-doubt, that feeling that even if I did know how or where, I don't think I could do it. Um, and we're going to do most of our thinking out of Ephesians 2. So if you've got a Bible or you've got it on your phone, uh, it might be helpful to have that in front of you. We're going to be sort of, sort of jumping in and out a little bit. Um, but I will read that through to kick us off, just to ground our thoughts. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast." For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So first up, dissatisfaction. And um, as we just heard in that quiz, I think there's wisdom in that equation. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. Um, and it's probably true that, that our generation has been raised with higher expectations about what life should look like and feel like than perhaps our grandparents were. Deep down, most of us expect life to feel happy and, and shiny and exciting pretty much all of the time. And, and when it doesn't, we're disappointed. Um, and part of it is fueled by the fact that as we look at our screens, it seems that everyone else is having a way better time than we are. Social media allows us to compare our lots with other people's like never before. Um, this device that's practically attached to our hands supplies us with a constant stream of images of people with better jobs, better friends, better figures, better homes, better lawns maybe, and all-round better lives than we do. But before we go much further, I'm conscious that some people here will be facing some really hard things at the moment, genuinely painful things. Um, and so it is worth saying that, that suffering itself is bad, and it's okay to want it to stop, and it's okay to ask God to change things. Um, and it's also worth saying that it's good to desire good things. So if, for example, we're single, it's not wrong to want to be married. 
Um, And there is such a thing as a godly dissatisfaction which longs to see justice done in our communities or to see our churches grow or to see our own lives conforming more and more to the image of Christ. All those are good longings. Um, But if I'm honest, a lot of my dissatisfaction has a much uglier root. Um, I'll I'll level with you. I, I wrote the first draft of this talk after one of those days at work and there are some colleagues of mine in the room, after one of those days at work where you imagine what it would be like to quit. Do you ever like to, uh, do you ever like to imagine that scenario? You know, the one where you hand in your notice and your manager moves from sort of disbelief to desperation to utter despair, and, uh, and you feel great in the, in the scenario. Um, anyway, I was just sort of um, on, my, on my way home after a particular day at work, replaying this quitting my job scenario and uh, I was like huh that's um that's interesting that's interesting that I'm doing that um because the the truth is often I'm dissatisfied because I want the wrong things um so to use the the language Paul uses in verse two it's because I'm following the ways of this world here's what I mean when I don't like my job for me it's because I, I desire novelty my job delivers routine I desire ease when my job is hard work. Um, I desire glory and and appreciation and a big pay rise when, uh, for the most part, I'm just an ordinary cog in a whole bigger machine. Um, So it's worth asking ourselves what the desires are that are underneath our sense of dissatisfaction. Um, There may be good desires in there, um, but the truth is, often I'm, I'm dissatisfied because I want to gratify myself. And when I can't, I want out. Um, And even when I get the things I think I want, and they they print a big yellow book with my name on, um, it never delivers the lasting satisfaction that I think that it will. And so it's sobering, isn't it, to remember where these desires lead. The end of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is where self-gratification will take us. And yet, and yet so often our default response to dissatisfaction is just to throw ourselves more fully into following the ways of the world. You know, work harder, save harder, try harder to get the house or the promotion or the partner. But if we're Christians, as we heard this morning, that's not who we are anymore. Uh, Paul is describing these Christians in Ephesians in the past tense. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when you were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And those two little verses show us who we are. That's where we'll find the truth that will satisfy. That's where we'll find the love that we long for, God's great love, the ultimate answer to our desire for relational acceptance and connectedness. Uh, Here's the approval we work for. God is rich in mercy and his approval of us is not earned but given despite what we like. And here's the answer to just the sort of drudgery of our weekly routine. He's, He's made us alive in Christ. We really are alive. So there's nothing else to look for. There's only this reality to enjoy, and and we didn't deserve it. Verse 5 says it's all grace, all totally undeserved kindness. 
Um, and so here's an, here's an illustration for the maths nerds and primary school teachers. Uh, but to make sure it works for the rest of us, the essential thing you need to know is that when you um, subtract, hold on, when you subtract a negative number from a positive number, it basically becomes an addition. And if that has gone over your head, I've included a handy diagram on your sheet from mathsisfun.com. Uh, I don't know what Michael Jackson is doing on there, uh, but uh, that it is theoretically meant to explain it to you. Uh, but the point is this, remember that equation from the quiz. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. Ephesians 2 says that the reality is that I'm loved by God, lavished with his mercy, and alive in Christ. That's a positive value in the millions. And the expectation should have been of God's wrath. That's what I deserve. After all, his perfectly justified anger at my sins, starting now and continuing into eternity. That's a sort of negative value in the millions. And what happens when you subtract a negative number away from a positive number? It becomes an addition. You know, that's what, that's what the diagram's showing you. So the, the point is this. If I have a proper view of my reality uh, that I have in Christ and a proper view of what by rights I should have expected because of my sin, then the happiness index will go off the charts. Um, and that's easy to say um, when we're on a weekend like this weekend. Maybe it's even easy to believe. Uh, but it's much harder on a Tuesday morning when the trains are on strike or whatever else. Um, but but that, is the, that is our gospel reality. Decision paralysis. Um, I don't think we've got time to sort of talk about the kind of decisions that stress you out, but I'm imagining there are probably some. Um, I am terrible at making decisions. Sometimes uh, when I've got to make a decision at work, people actually down tools to watch. It's practically a spectator sport. Um, so I don't really feel like I've got this figured out, but I'm going to give it a go. And um, if it's something you want to think about more, you really should read Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, or maybe hunt him down this weekend and ask him about it. Um, but perhaps some of you find yourself feeling like Ian. This is a quote from a secular book written by a psychologist called Meg Jay called The Defining Decade. And here's what she writes about one of her clients. She says... Ian told me his 20-something years were like being in the middle of the ocean, like this vast, unmarked body of water. He couldn't see land in any direction, so he didn't know which way to go. He felt overwhelmed by the prospect that he could swim anywhere or do anything. He was equally paralyzed by the, by the fact that he didn't know which of the anythings would work out. Tired and hopeless, at age 25, he said he was treading water, to stay alive. Um, I think this is fairly typical uh, for many of us in our 20s. I've certainly felt that way before. Um, we feel unable to make decisions because there are so many paths to choose from and we're not sure where we're aiming to get to. And there are many wonderful things about living in the 21st century, especially in a city like London where there's so much going on. But the explosion of choice is something of a mixed blessing. Um, and at the same time, we get this enormous pressure from our culture that uh, in our 20s, we need to work out who we are and what we're going to contribute to the world. We need to find our purpose, uh, the things that we're passionate about. And maybe from another direction, we're under pressure from our parents to hit the milestones and make something of ourselves, you know, grow up, 
get married, get a real job, start a family. And then maybe there's an internal pressure. If we're honest, most of us have a desire for our lives to go somewhere and mean something. We hate this idea that we're just floating through. So again, you know, maybe at New Year's or around our birthdays or uh, whenever else, we look at our lives and ask, is, is this it? Where is my life going? And uh, in one sense, verse 6 provides an answer. Paul says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We might not know where life is going in the next five years or the next 50 years, but we do know where things are going in the next 5,000 years. God has saved us so that in the coming ages, when all Christ's people are gathered home into the party, you know, that moment that the scene out there on the, on the field or in the big top is just a teeny tiny picture of, uh, when we come together to fully display the breathtaking scale of God's grace. If we're a Christian, we're part of a story which is building to a climax where Jesus is glorified forever. So whatever our lives look like at the moment, it's not one of aimless drifting. We've got a destination. And the, the start of verse 6 says that in many ways we're as good as there already. So when we're surrounded by a sea of maybes, maybe I should do this, maybe I should move there, maybe I should go out with him, we can look ahead, past the maybes, to what is sure and is so exciting. And um, let me tell you about one of my more, more recent where is my life going panics. Uh, you know how after Christmas, almost everyone you know announces they're engaged? You know, I like to call it Engagement Sunday. Um, well, uh, one particular friend got engaged, and there had been some similarities uh, between how our lives have panned out up to that point. Uh, but now her life had taken one turn, and mine had taken another, and it threw up all the questions about where is my life going? What am I going to be doing in another decade? What, what do I want life to look like? Blah, 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 in a, a cycle of terror. And, uh, and maybe this is a slightly selfish way of thinking about it, but I offer it to you in case it's helpful. Um, I, just, I just remember it suddenly occurred to me that Jesus might come back before this friend got married. <laughs> like... Jesus might come back tomorrow. And, and in which case, all my existential agonizing would have been for nothing. Neither of us would have gained anything or lost anything. The destination would be the same. And even if, if Jesus didn't come back tomorrow, my friend went on to have a long and happy marriage. Uh, and I, I hope that she does, although it would be awesome if Jesus came back tomorrow. The, the, the principle still stands, doesn't it? The, the destination is still the same. So... I don't need to sweat the next 60 years. It might be tomorrow. Um, but I probably do need to do something with the next 60 years. And so how do we decide what? Um, well, here are the, the bullet points on your sheet. Um, the first thing, I, I think it's helpful to remember that, that God is not hiding from us when we come to make these stressful decisions. In one sense, he's already told us what his will for our life is. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Some choices are moral choices. And on these issues, God has clearly spoken through his word, and we just need to do what he says. 
Um, but God's word isn't just filled with sort of don't do that. He also tells us what he wants our priorities to be. You know, for one thing, church should be really important to us. Telling our friends about Jesus should be really important to us. But even having said that, there are a lot of choices that are sort of morally neutral. You know, should I live in this flat or that flat? Take this job or that job? Join this church or that church? And in these cases where God hasn't told us what he wants to do through his word, then we have the freedom to decide. It's not that God's got one flat in mind that he wants you to choose and you have to figure out what it is. He's not hiding like that. Now, of course, something can be sinful, but still not wise. Um, so the, the first step is to consider whether a decision is a moral decision that God has addressed in his word or a wisdom call. If it's a moral decision, just do what God says. And if it's a wisdom call, then maybe the following steps will help. Second, limit your options. Um, in that book I mentioned earlier, The Defining Decade, she writes about an experiment in how consumers make choices. So in one instance, cons customers in a grocery store were offered six types of jam to sample for free. In another instance, there were 24 flavors to choose from. Now, the bigger display generated more attention, but fewer customers actually bought any jam. There was too much choice. It was overwhelming. And here's the conclusion she draws. 20-somethings, here they are in front of a boundless array of choices. Being told you can do anything or go anywhere is like standing in front of the 24-flavor table. But I have yet to meet a 20-something who has 24 viable options. You've spent more than two decades shaping who you are. You have experiences, interests, strengths, weaknesses, diplomas, hang-ups, priorities. You're standing in front of six flavors of jam, and you know something about whether you prefer kiwi or black cherry. So if there's an area of life that's sort of agonizing you at the moment, what are the flavors of jam that you're standing in front of? What are your viable options? Write them down or talk them over with a Christian who knows you well. Make them specific. Then third, consider your motives. What is it that's making you want to change or, or not change? What's attracting you to a particular option? Is it fear of the unknown, of risk, of what someone will think of you? Is it pride, material gain? Or it may well be a good motive, a desire to serve God with more of your time or your gifts, maybe. The truth is that our motives are really hard to figure out. And most of the time, they're a confusing mix of the good and the ugly. And if we search hard enough, we're all, almost always going to find elements of the latter. And that's not a reason not to do something. But where your motives are almost all self-serving and not honorable, then that should probably be a red flag. And this is where prayer comes in too. Prayer should really come into all of these, really. Um, and it, it's tempting when we pray, isn't it, to ask God to just tell us what he wants us to do. You know, like, God, give me a, give me a sign already. And then the, the shaft of light comes down to illuminate the person you should marry. Um, but when Paul prays for the Philippians, he prays that they would be able to discern what is best. Discernment. Um, and that discernment comes from knowing and loving God better and better. 
So that suggests that a decision is something we ask God for help with and then think hard about, trusting that he's working with us rather with it, working within us rather than sort of writing the answer in the sky. Fourth, seek counsel, ask a few people for their wisdom, people who know you well, who love Jesus, who have more life experience than you. Um, and if you're in this marquee today as someone who's not in their 20s and 30s, thank you so much for coming. And um, it's such a, a joy when older Christians uh, speak into our lives. Um, and the church is a, a great resource that we should lean on. Um, people love it when you come honestly, humbly, asking them for help. So let's listen. Let's be prepared to change course as we think through what they say. And then fifth, make a decision. With all that said and done, this last one's crucial. And this is what Kevin DeYoung says, just do something, just make a decision. Um, and if you decide no, make it a no. That doesn't mean you can't ever decide yes later down the line. Sometimes it's wise to revisit a decision if um, our circumstances or character change with time. But what's not helpful is sort of living in an ongoing state of paralysis with this permanent sense of maybe hanging over our heads. So if you've decided it's best to stay in your job until the end of the year, stop looking at job websites. If you've decided you shouldn't marry the guy, break up with him. If you've decided you can't afford to go traveling next summer, stop scrolling travel hashtags on Instagram. Um, so there we are, five things to help us make decisions. So we've been thinking in this seminar about our sort of millennial malaise. We've thought about dissatisfaction. I don't like where my life is at right now. Um, we've thought about decision paralysis. I don't know what or how to change it. And finally, let's just think briefly about self-doubt, which says, even if I did know how, I don't think I could. Um, self-doubt is that voice inside that tells us you can't do it. It's that sense as we look at our day or at the future at large that we're just not cut out to handle it. Now, I don't know uh, what it is that sends your inner voice of self-doubt into overdrive. Maybe it's a dissertation with a word count in the tens of thousands or a job with targets you know you'll never meet or a manager you'll never satisfy. Uh, maybe it's a role at church that you're, you're, you think you're stuffing up or that you're just avoiding altogether because you're just so afraid of it. Um, what do we do when we feel like that? Our culture tells us to believe in ourselves, to, to look in the mirror and tell yourself that you can do it. But I think the Bible disagrees. In fact, I think a little self-doubt can be helpful if we know what to do with it. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 8 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We did not save ourselves. So we needed God to do it for us. It's not like God is lucky to have me on his team. It was all and is all a gift. So boasting is out because salvation is not from ourselves and neither is anything else. A sense of our own unworthiness, our own weakness, can be a mark of real spiritual health. But if we're honest, a lot of our self-doubt isn't just about not wanting to fail. It's about not wanting to be seen to fail by other people. That's often 
the fear um, that everyone will see well, that I'm rubbish, that I'll be exposed, that I'll let other people down. But if we've grasped the truth at the heart of verses 8 and 9, we won't fear exposure because we'll have accepted that that's who we are. We won't fear being found out that we're useless if we've honestly come to terms with our own spiritual uselessness. Um, if, you're, if you're someone who struggles with self-doubt, let that voice remind you that, yes, you were a spiritual pauper in need of the most unimaginably gracious gift. And some of us could do with a little more self-doubt, to be honest. Uh, but before we retreat into our caves forever, uh, let's look at verse 10. Salvation is not by works, but it is for works. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we're a Christian, we are God's handiwork. We have been made new in Christ. Yes, we were unworthy, but now we're a new creation. And that means that you have something to offer the world. You've got something to offer your church and your family and your workplace and your community. Uh, because as you look at your week ahead or the years ahead, you can know that God has prepared specific good works for you to do. You know, there are the big ones, uh, maybe a spouse for you to cherish, children for you to raise, parents for you to care for, vulnerable people for you to help, friends for you to call into the kingdom. You know, there are solutions for you to dream up and dreams for you to implement. And God has prepared good works for you to do today. Even the small, seemingly mundane things are a gift from his hand too. There are messes for you to tidy and meals for you to cook. There are church friends for you to encourage and pray for and lonely people for you to come alongside. Some good works will be easy. Others will be costly. Some will be fun. Others will be painful. Some will take us years. Others will be done with barely a moment's thought. But each one is prepared specifically for you by your Savior. And for each one, he promises to equip you by his Spirit. And that means, yes, we can do it. Uh, and that's what we need to remind ourselves every time we face a challenge that we feel ill-equipped to handle. Is this a good work? Uh, and that's what we need to ask ourselves every time we face a task that we just can't be bothered with or that just seems so mundane and pointless. Is this a good work? And if it is, then God has sovereignly, lovingly prepared it for you and prepared you for it. Uh, and this is what will make our 20s and 30s worthwhile. Um, and as I finish, let me just tell you about a conversation that um, broke my heart a little bit this week. Uh, it was at, we were at Bible study. Uh, we have a group in our church for 20-somethings. And we've go, been going through Mark's gospel. We've got to Mark 14. And it's in the week before Jesus dies. And he's reclining at the table with his friends, having dinner. And a woman comes in, and she breaks open this expensive jar of perfume. And she pours it all over Jesus. And everyone is outraged because it's such a waste of money. But Jesus says, no, she's done a beautiful thing. She's prepared my body for my burial. And we talked in our group about how because Jesus was willing to die for us, a response like that woman's wasn't wasteful or insane. It's what he deserves. He really is that valuable. He really is that precious. He is totally worthy of our outrageous, costly adoration. 
But earlier in the evening, I had been chatting to one of the girls who's just come back from a few months away backpacking. And uh, it was so lovely to see her, and she was absolutely buzzing about it, uh, telling me where she's been and what she'd seen. And uh, she was saying she wants to save up to do the whole of Southeast Asia next year. And uh, as part of the conversation, she says this. She says, I think I'm going to make my 20s all about travel, um, which I, I didn't think much of at the time. But as I went home, I was just struck that evening by the, the disconnect there. Um, but it's what we all do in one way or another. It's what I definitely do. I, I make my 20s all about so many things other than Jesus. So let me say to you what I should have said to her and what I definitely have to say to myself. Um, if we make our 20s about traveling, we will have wasted them. If we make our 20s about building our career, we will waste them. If we make our 20s about getting a ring on our finger or a house key in our hand, we will have wasted them. We will squander the prime of our lives if we make these years about anything other than Jesus, listening to Jesus, loving Jesus, and loving the things that he loves. That would be tragic. It'd be tragic if we wasted our 20s like that because they could mean so much, and they can mean so much if we pour them out in the service of Jesus. That, says Jesus, is a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said that whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for you and for the gospel will save it. So Father, please help us to do that. Thank you that in the gospel you have made us alive. Please help us to pour out our lives at the service of Jesus, to move forwards with confidence and joy to do the good works you've prepared for us to do. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Co-Mission Podcast. For more about Rachel's book, Is This It? Go to the Good Book Company website and look for the book with the avocado on the front.